Well, friends, let me share um, some words from Matthew's Gospel with you, uh, starting at verse 17. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then verse 23, Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. Then the disciple, then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Well, friends, who can tell me an origin movie? You know, like this is the first one in the series, even though it wasn't the first one that they made. Any takers? This is a real question. It's not a rhetorical. Star Wars? Star Wars? Yes. Okay. Any, any other ones? Who can tell me an origin movie? Like, you know, this is, this is where it all started, even though, even though it's, it's not the first movie that was made or anything like that. June? Okay. All right. Well, I was thinking that this week that this message is actually a prequel to last week's message um, on the importance of small groups in building Christian community because it, it really goes to the heart of what that community actually is, what it looks like, what it does. Uh, small groups are in some ways like a subset uh, of that, but what I want to talk about today is a dynamic um, centre and, and reason for being of that community. You know, we, we can't deny, can we, that we're sensing and watching some pretty seismic shifts happening in the world in which we live. And uh, that is having massive implications for the worldwide church as we seek to grapple with those changes and um, move forward with relevance and creativity to package the gospel for our day. So what is it that keeps Christian leaders awake at night? What are the questions that are so true, so deeply disturbing, so concerning that they just slice through all of the things that the world that uh, would normally divide us. What are the questions that keep all of us up at night? What does the church of the future look like? And how do we reach people who don't know Jesus? But there's another question that's lurking behind those two questions. It's the question that people don't want to admit 
not having the answer to. Yet it's the question that really everything else hinges on. And the answer leads to the future of the church. The answer teaches us how to reach people who don't know Jesus. The answer is everything. And yet either we haven't realised that we should be asking it or we can't seem to push ourselves to ask the question. It's as if it's embarrassing to even ask, isn't this something that we should have figured out by now? You could argue that we're the most educated people who have ever lived. Why are we wrestling with this question? And why don't we have good answers for it? This is the question. How do we make disciples? The problem is that most of us have been trained to build, serve and lead the organisation of the church. Most of us have actually never been trained to make disciples. And I'm so, so grateful, and I had to ask for that, uh, for mentors in my life that helped me to actually do that, to find that as the centre. And as we look around at an increasingly secular society where the the church is being pushed to the margins instead of being at the centre, this stark revelation emerges Most of us have been trained for a world that no longer exists. However, the call to make disciples still remains. It never wavers, it never changes. Go and make disciples, said Jesus. It's pretty clear. And here's the thing that can be difficult to wrap our minds around. If you make disciples, you always get the church. But if you make a church, you don't always get disciples. Most of us have become quite good at the church thing, and yet disciples are the only thing that Jesus cares about. It's the only number that Jesus is counting, not our attendance, our budget, our buildings. He just wants to know if we're making disciples and whether our church has dozens of people showing up on Sunday, not with our church rather, has dozens of people showing up on Sunday. But we have to honestly answer this question. Do our lives look like the lives of the people that we see in Scripture? Are we just good at getting people together once a week? Or are we good at producing the types of people that we read about in the New Testament. Now, they weren't perfect, of course, but they were on their way and they were doing things like planting churches and uh, sharing their love of Jesus as a regular course of their lives. We need to understand that church is the result of discipleship and not the cause. If you set out to build the church, there's no guarantee that you'll make disciples. Um, We, I guess, can create consumers who depend on the spiritual services that religious professionals provide. And one of the buzzwords around today is the word missional. 
People want to create missional churches or missional programs or missional small groups. The problem is we don't have a missional problem or a leadership problem here in the Western church. What we have is a discipleship problem. If you know how to disciple people well, you will always get mission, a heartbeat that is strong. And Jesus gave us the model for how to disciple people, just 12, and they turned the world of their time upside down for Christ. If you know how to make disciples, you'll reach people who don't know Jesus because that is simply what disciples do. And that was Jesus' whole plan. If you disciple people as these people do mission in their everyday lives, the future of the church will emerge. It all starts with that, with making disciples and building a discipling community that has that at its centre. The mark of our community is that we're empowering people for personal and spiritual growth, empowering people for missional growth, who in turn empower others. And so I'll talk about this at the end, but that, that's like a multiplying ripple that we're talking about. We're talking about both those in the church and those outside it. So this was Jesus' model for heaven colliding with earth, for seeing the kingdom of God advance in community, for seeing the world put right and people becoming Christians, discipleship, his whole deal. Discipleship is first and foremost a relational endeavour depending on broken people living in the grace of God. And perhaps we need to take a step back at this point and consider what Jesus was able to accomplish in less than three years. He was able to disciple a group of men, most of whom no one else would have chosen. Let's be real here. (laughs) And taught them to do and to be like him in such a way that when released, they would change the course of human history forever. Now, how was Jesus able to do that in such a way that he didn't break them and have them all running for the hills? How did the challenge of what he was asking them to do not absolutely overwhelm them? Simply put, Jesus was the ultimate when it came to discipleship. He was able to create a discipling culture in which there was an appropriate mix of invitation and challenge in the way that he related to them. And this is beautifully illustrated in Matthew 16. If we could have the next slide, thanks, Mel. Um, As Peter receives the revelation that Jesus is the Son of God, Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom in heaven. And in affirming Peter, Jesus was reaching out to him, inviting him, draw closer to me, Peter. And Jesus gives him the name Little Rock, 
You know, Peter, when translated from the Greek word Petrus, means little rock. And at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, in the parable of the wise and the foolish builder, Jesus refers himself as the Petra, the big rock. And Jesus is the big rock, Peter's the little rock. Jesus is sharing his identity with Peter as a partner with God. The same relationship that Jesus has with his father. Peter now has with the father. And Peter's being invited into a deeper relationship with Jesus. So much so that Peter is being offered the keys to the kingdom and given access to Jesus' authority and his power. It must have been an incredible moment for Peter. Yet, a few verses later, after having taken Jesus aside to suggest that he stopped speaking about dying in Jerusalem, Peter is massively challenged. Jesus says, you are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. Time and again in the Gospels, we see Jesus inviting his followers into an intimate relationship with him. And in that relationship, initiating a direct challenge to behaviours that he knew were either wrong or unhealthy. He drew his disciples closer. He loved them. But he also gave them the opportunity to accept the responsibilities of discipleship. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. Invitation, friends, is about being given access into a person's life and all of the vibrancy and safety and love and encouragement that reside there. To learn from the places you clearly see Jesus at work in people's lives, which you can only see by having access to them. But in accepting that invitation, you also accept the challenge that comes with it. The challenge to live into your identity as a son or daughter of the king. And Jesus created a highly inviting uh, uh, but highly challenging culture for his disciples to function and grow within. And if we are going to build a culture of discipleship, we'll have to learn that balance between invitation and challenge appropriately. Fundamentally, effective leadership is based on an invitation to relationship and a challenge to change. And a gifted discipler, as Jesus was, is someone who invites people into that relationship but challenges the person to live into his or her true identity. in direct but graceful ways. Without both dynamics working together, we will not see people grow into the people that God has created them to be. And on this slide, you can see we have some different sorts of cultures to a discipling or empowering culture. A chaplaincy quadrant, where there is low challenge but high invitation, 
a boring quadrant, low challenge and low invitation, and a stressful quadrant where there's high challenge but low invitation into relationship and nurture. So Peter is being invited by Jesus into deeper relationships, so much so that Peter's being offered these keys to the kingdom, the authority um, and, and power that Jesus gives him, and it must have been incredible. And yet, that challenge. And when looking at this matrix, we understand why we've had such a difficult time discipling people in our churches because churches often seek to create comfortable environments that have lost their ability to challenge people in meaningful ways. You know, I can say a whole bunch of things to you from the pulpit but you need to decide at the end of that what you do with that. And maybe no one's going to ask you or, um, or, or test you on that. You know, just because someone preaches about forgiveness doesn't mean anyone is holding people accountable to, to forgive next week. And so here is the thing. Challenge is always given best in the context of personal relationships. This is why we need to get back to community, to relationship. And that can be true in a church or in a small group. If Fred says, you know... Um, I'm, I'm going to connect with Kelvin at my workplace and I really want to share Jesus with him uh, over this coming week. Um, do, does the small group leader, the connect group leader, actually say, how did you go with that application from last week? These are some key questions for us to process, friends. I think challenge can and does happen in small groups, as I shared, but some clear conversations about what a small group, uh, what a connect group um, needs, unless it drifts into that cosy place where it's just a, a chaplaincy quadrant. Because I guess the, the flip side of that is that if we have churches with warm, cosy, comfortable, inviting environments, someone's paying the price to make sure that happens. There's another group shouldering all of that responsibility and expectations and challenges, whether it's church leaders or pastors or staff or elders or volunteers. Usually... 20% of the people doing almost all the work. And because of that, their experience is extremely high on the challenge side, but low on invitation and nurture. What space to receive encouragement and rest, downtime and investment. You know... 
So sometimes people get discouraged and frustrated and stressed. I guess it's pretty clear, friends, isn't it? No one accidentally creates disciples. It is an intentional pursuit. No one creates a discipling culture by accident, uh, modelled on the life and ministry of Jesus. No one accidentally creates disciples. Discipleship is intentional. And learning how to balance invitation and challenge appropriately in the lives of those we are discipling is difficult, but it is extremely rewarding. If we want to free people from that um, captivity of a client-provider type relationship that we've seen emerge in the church and create empowerment, then it is a must-win battle. We should invest all we have in creating empowered leaders who can function as producers, as disciples. And you know, friends, it's okay. No one was born great at discipling people. It takes time, it takes practice, it takes mistakes, it takes lessons. And you are right from the beginning going to be better at either invitation or challenge and will need to learn how to do the other one well. So I'm thinking that most of you have at least one of those skills that you're better at. And then it's worth not being great from it at, the start, at it from the start so we can learn to do it well over the long haul. Building a culture and a community of discipleship is the only way we'll produce the kind of the community that Jesus and the New Testament writers would recognise as a church. A dynamic living organism with sufficient organisation to enable it to function uh, appropriately and effectively. Yet being a community that is full of the life of God. Where hearts are open to God, to one another and to a world in need. It's liberating to think, isn't it, that with God's spirit over time, we can learn the ways of Jesus, doing the things that he did, becoming more like him. doesn't happen overnight, but the expectation of scripture is that um, we engage in different ways of learning. You look at that this in the Gospels. There seem to be three different ways in which the disciples learnt. And it's best when there's a, a dynamic interplay between each of these. Classroom learning, passing on of information, apprenticeship and immersion. And we see that in the ministry of Jesus where he had time aside with his disciples to instruct them more deeply. Um, Probably half of the time uh, Jesus actually spent with his disciples, not doing public ministry. Um, Apprenticeship, 
they were always there. They were always asking, you know, how does this work? And, um, uh, and, and so on. You know, how do I drive this demon out? Whatever. Um, and, uh, and immersion is when someone is put into an environment, setting or culture and learns by intuitively picking up what they see and experience. So, friends, because this is so important, one church where I pastored, we ran a year of discipleship and leadership equipping for 13 young adults. It had three strands. Uh, The learning and leadership equipping, things like, you know, what does the Bible say about money? How do I understand my spiritual gifts? How do I lead a small group? How do I do youth ministry? Um, How do I get guidance from God and so on? So that was the input segment. Then each person was teamed up with a mentor from the congregation who they met with regularly. And most of these people, they hadn't mentored before, but we gave them some tips and hints of how to actually do that. Um, And it was a great experience and relationship for both mentor and mentee. Um, And then they signed up for an immersion experience, a a ministry experience. in a setting of their choosing. So some of them uh, did youth ministry outside the church, uh, some uh, taught Sunday school and so on. Um, and so they could evaluate uh, with their mentor what God was saying in all of that. Uh, three of those people have become amazing pastors and others are living out their faith with imagination and leading others. And here is the thing. If you bust an apple apart, in it is a seed. That is um, a part of who it is. Oh, that, that is a part. It, the, its ability to reproduce is a part of its life. And so Jesus' plan is that disciples are made who in turn make more disciples, who in turn make more disciples, and so that continues. They change the world, plant new churches, plant new small groups. And sometimes we miss this, don't we, friends? We just say, if we get the information right, then everything will be good. If we teach the Bible enough and so on, um, then that will be fabulous. But it needs more than that. We need these three, apprenticeship, immersion and classroom. Now, it's not enough for me to just know facts about Joanne. Um, But... Or, or any of our spouses. We, we want to know them through and through. And, and Paul says the same sort, sort of thing. He says, I, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. It's not just about head stuff. We don't want people who understand um, about prayer or mission or justice 
only intellectually. People who can hear and respond to God, who know him. People who have hearts that break for the world and for the people in it and do something about it. Look at what Jesus did. Called 12 guys to follow him, to be his disciples, to be learners of him. People who would learn to do all of the things that he does and somehow to to carry his very essence through the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. And they saw a life in Jesus that they wanted for themselves. Uh, Even at first they didn't know this. And and by their behaviour seemed to say, if I do the things that he does, I can feel fairly certain that I'm going to have a good outcome and my life may actually look more and more like Jesus. Apprenticeship. Find someone with a life that resembles the life of Jesus and do what he or she does. That's what the disciples were doing. And when you see this picture... um, that Jesus was constantly teaching and showing his disciples how he lived. Clearly, there was a high level of apprenticeship going on. Jesus preaches the good news, heals the sick, cleanses the lepers, drives out the demons. Uh, And in Luke 9, he sends out the 12 to do the same. They've seen him do this for months now. Uh, And in Luke 10, he then sends out the 72 And now there's even coaching involved. The disciples were astounded that here is this stuff working. We saw this happening, Jesus, it was fabulous. And, And seriously, us too. It's not just you, Jesus, but us too. And they said, well, there's one spirit that we're having a bit of a problem with um, and uh, it's not leaving. Um, so Jesus just, you know, you can imagine him just casually shrugging his shoulders and saying, oh, yeah, that one. Well, you know, with that one, you need fasting and prayer before you deal with it, you know. And, and that's what apprenticing looks like and feels like. And classroom learning, I guess, things like the Sermon on the Mount is actually directed to his disciples, he went up when he saw the crowds, he went up a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him. Some translations actually say those who apprenticed to him came to him. And he began to teach them in Matthew 5.1. So Jesus constantly teaching his disciples, giving insights from scripture and about his character. And the disciples, of course, were with Jesus. 24-7. And uh, as said before, Jesus spent about half his time with the disciples. There's an incredible example of immersion at work in the book of Mark, as Jesus enters into his first week of ministry, he drops by Capernaum and does the things that seem normal to Jesus, uh, but extraordinary to everyone else, teaching with confidence and authority that they hadn't witnessed before, healing everyone who were asked, 
um, calling out evil spirits, healing Peter's mother-in-law, just an average day in the office for Jesus. And by the end of the day, word had gotten out all over Galilee and the house is flooded with sick, um, battered and broken person from, from the surrounding area. And, and scripture says that as the sun goes down, he healed them all. Not bad for a first day of ministry in this place. Uh, one might say that revival had broken out in Capernaum. Then something very, very interesting happens. Before the sun has come down, before it's even dawn, Jesus gets up early, goes to a spot by himself to grab some time resting and talking with his father. And apparently the Peter and the rest of the guys get up, they can't find Jesus, and um, I'm pretty sure more people would have gathered uh, waiting for Jesus to do more teaching and healing. So they go and find him, they find him, and, and Peter, probably pretty excited about what's going to happen in the second day here, you know, what's Jesus going to do for an encore? He says, oh, um, yeah, Jesus, everyone's looking for you. Uh, probably you might want to make your way back to the house now. And amazingly, Jesus' response is, hmm, yeah, I don't think so. Let's leave. We've got other places to go. Seriously? Now, let's be honest here. If we had started something and there were thousands of people who just showed up, out of nowhere for the, on the first day, wanting more and more of our time. If we had seen the things that Capernaum had seen the day before, it's safe to assume we'd start a building campaign, a podcast, a newsletter, uh, a Twitter feed and a Facebook page, a blog, a new website, and Jesus leaves. Wow. Wow. How did he know he was supposed to leave? Well, early in the morning before dawn, he got up and spent time with his father and then did something contrary to what seems like the reasonable course of action in response to what his father was telling him to do. It's kind of baffling, isn't it? So for Jesus, success isn't thousands of people and never-expanding church. Success is obedience to what the Father asks. You know, Jesus' last words, make disciples. All over the world, make disciples. If there's anything any of us should become good at, it's making disciples who can in turn make disciples because we take seriously the principle that Jesus established. Every disciple disciples. You can't be a disciple if you're not willing to invest in and disciple others. That is simply the call of the Great Commission. And as connect groups birth new groups, as churches plant new churches, so we can disciple people who are not yet Christians or we can disciple people who are Christians. It's just meeting with someone over coffee. Starting, start with once. See if you click. And then meet up every four to six weeks. Spend time in the word. Spend time in prayer. Ask these two questions. What is God saying to you? 
And what are you going to do about it? Relationship and challenge. But of course, Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples. What might that look like? Who around you is not yet a Christian? Family, neighbours. Imagine this, that if you discipled people, three people who are not yet Christians, maybe met with them fortnightly, maybe monthly, over two years they become a Christian and grow and start meeting in turn with three others around the Bible and prayer. After 30 years, there will be 14 million 348,907 people who have been impacted by your life. That, friends, is a legacy. That is a life worth living. Will you pray with me? Our Father God, we confess that In so many ways, we have missed your way to being a community that is a disciple-making community. That there are times where we haven't balanced appropriately relationship and challenge. And that we have become sometimes quite cosy in our churches. Our God, would you help us? Would you empower us by your spirit to lead others just one-on-one? Just people in our small group. to invite people into a, to- into a place of warm and rich relationship, but also to bring appropriate challenge. Would you help us to grow both Christians and also those around us who do not yet know Christ? Our God, whether it's whether it's 14 million or a different number, we want to live lives that leave a legacy. And sometimes we confess that we're busy in the institution of the church and we miss out on doing the discipling of others that you're calling us to. Sometimes we're busy Um, in our neighbourhoods, not connecting with neighbours and having those conversations that might lead to other places and lead to disciple-making. God, forgive us for that. Would you help us and equip us to go into all the world and make disciples to make disciples in our families, to make disciples in our church, 
to make disciples in our neighbourhood. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.